The vicious voices of the right are out in full force, and it's time for us to get up and organize against the heartless attacks on our civil rights. Start your morning diving into the headlines and issues that matter to our everyday lives, speaking with changemakers and hearing from you, our listeners. Hear your host, Zerlina Maxwell, break down the top news, push for solutions from officials who represent us, and call out the misinformation and hypocrisy that surrounds us, plus the engaging stories that keep you energized. Get your morning boost of politics, culture, and everything you need to start your day. It's always darkest before the dawn, but the dawn is here. Shining a light on the ruthless forces across the aisle and rising for a brighter future for all of us. This is Mornings with Zerlina. Welcome to Mornings with Zerlina. I'm Zerlina Maxwell. Joining us on the phone is a congressperson representing Pennsylvania's 12th District, Summer Lee. Thank you so much for being here. Good morning. It's so great when I can um, start off an interview and, and say and cite um, history like that because I, I fully believe, we talk about it all the time on the show, and I wrote a whole book about it that America is undergoing demographic shifts. And so I feel like um, there's a younger, more diverse generation of voters and now elected officials that are going to change the game. Um, how do you see um, the general, the generational shift um, that is underway and, and your place sort of within it? Um, because I feel like, you know, the squad is, the quote-unquote squad is getting bigger. Yeah, I'm here because of, you know, generational shift, demographic shift. Like Western Pennsylvania has, I mean, when we think about the fact that black women have never been represented in Congress at all, Western Pennsylvania has never had a black rep or a Democrat has never had a non-woman rep. This is because younger generations are more progressive. We are more global, global minded, more engaged, more political. Folks are getting political younger, right? So we're seeing all of that play out as young folks, as black and brown folks, as otherwise marginalized folks are really finding their voice, really finding their politics, and they're now sending people who reflect them to these spaces to hold it accountable to its lack of representation in the past. It's such an important point because I think too often um, when, when you're too young to sort of vote, you're like, stuff's happening, policy's affecting your life, but you can't um, change it. And now that young people are coming of age, you're right, they're electing people that can go and speak um, on their behalf and, and speak based on similarly lived experiences. How do you think you were able to do it? How were you able to make this history? What do you think it was about your message and a very progressive message at that that resonated in your district? You know, I think it was, I think it was just being honest. It's really hard, I think, in politics, we're told that you have to look a certain way and sound a certain way and be a certain way. But truly, this kind of new movement of people engaging in politics, they want to see themselves. They want to see themselves as they are. And they just want people who are going to be honest with them as they come and court them, right? So honoring, right, this, this generation, honoring this demographic, these new demographics, expanding the electorate, right, bringing people in who for so long they've been left out of politics. They don't get mailers. You know, the Democratic Party's not knocking on their door. They're not super voters. We really went to those people, and we spoke their language, and we talked about the things they cared about, and then they came out in turn. So I think it was really just authentic engagement. How do you think your lived experiences inform your policymaking? I mean, what, how does a, a younger black woman come to the job of, of representing constituents in a congressional district that's different than an older white person that – you know, we're traditionally used to seeing, you know, a white man in a suit be a congressperson or a senator. And now you have people who don't have 
they they haven't lived one day in a body like that, right? So mm-hmm. their experience is going to be so different. How do you think it 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 changes um, and informs your policymaking? Oh, I mean, in just so many different ways. Like, I will never be a white man in a suit. That's not my experience, and I have never experienced the privileges that come with it. What I have experienced are the disadvantages that come with being a black and a woman and poor and growing up in a, in a former still town, right? I've experienced living in a neighborhood where we have some of the worst air quality in the nation, right? I've experienced growing up in public schools that are underfunded because of our inequitable funding scheme, right? These are all issues that are urgent to me. They're urgent to my community. So it's harder to go into these places and ignore them. My friends are corporate CEOs and managers, right? So I don't care to give them breaks, right? I care to give working people a break because my family are working people, right? I'm a working person. So those with experiences are expertise, right? It's a qualification, and we're trying to recalibrate and to remind people that actually these perspectives are our qualifications just as much as, you know, folks who are richer and their law degrees. It's such an important point. I think that too often people are like, well, I have, a, I have business experience, and somehow business experience means that you're going to be a good congressperson as opposed to you had a, a regular working job, you, you, you know, you mm-hmm. made hourly wages as if that's not also – really, really great experience because you're, you're, you're going in to set policy for everybody. Um, and so I feel like that we need the full spectrum. And often I feel like people showing up and saying, well, I have business experience. It makes them seem more serious somehow. Then, then, I mean, even when they talk about AOC having an, uh, a previous job as a bartender, that's supposed to be like a yeah. negative thing. I'm like, no, that actually makes her probably more relatable to the regular experience of a normal person. Yep than a CEO, right? That's why I talk about it that way. That's exactly, yeah. when, I ran, when I ran the first time, you know, I went to law school, you know, I'm first generation, right? First generation mm-hmm. college, first generation law school. But I talked about being an organizer, right? I talked about growing up the mother, like the daughter of a single black mother who was a bartender, right? I talked about, you know, my experiences growing up and brought up, right? These are things that resonated with people that made them understand that, you know what, I know I'm there. And so instead of coming with titles, and all those things, you run that way because then you remind your constituents that their only role in the political process isn't just the vote. They can now see themselves, right, maybe they were unhoused and they can see how they can impact housing policy, right? They're seeing themselves differently in this system, and that's the shift that we need. So when you were coming to start your job as a congressperson, you had a little bit of a delay, right? You, you weren't <laughs> even sworn in yet for... 15 rounds of voting for for Kevin McCarthy. Um, so you're you're there, but like I'm not even certain that like, you were getting paid or anybody was getting paid yet because you weren't sworn into office. I mean, what was going through your mind sitting there as as an, a, a representative elect that's not officially a congressperson yet, and you're not even sworn yeah. in yet because you got to wait for the Republican Party to vote 15 times to pick Kevin McCarthy as a speaker and allow for him to one vote to remove him as if. <laughs> That's like yeah. a really great yeah. idea. No. no, I mean, there are so many thoughts. I mean, you're very right. I'm not going to pretend that, like, think about whether or not we're getting paid and run through a lot of our minds because you're someone like really? me. Oh. I haven't had a paycheck. Since, I mean, I haven't had a paycheck since November. And on January 1, I had to pay rent, you know, and a mortgage. And I'm not, I'm not built that way. So, like, that right. was another one concern. I was just thinking about just how embarrassing this has been, right? If other people, if it, if it was one of us, who went up there and showed such a total ineptitude of controlling our members, our house, right? It would have been a completely different story. And to see our government like this, to see where the Republican Party is going, this is what they asked for, 
This is what they asked for. This is a part of their ongoing insurrection that they, this is the conditions that they created when they courted, right, the most extreme in their party. So people taking this lightly are, are laughing at the show. Like, it's funny, you know, when we see it on C-SPAN, but in reality, there are real-life implications to this. And I think that we are going in a direction and kind of passing a point of no return that we are going to have to reconcile really soon. So I thought about that a lot. I mean, one of the things that's it's coming home to roost pretty quickly here is the debt ceiling, right? Because um, we've hit the debt limit. And now we have to play chicken um, with the nation's economy, the world economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's pretty clear through reporting and what was taking place in that circus we were watching on C-SPAN that the deal Kevin McCarthy sort of made with the extremists who didn't want to vote for him is you know, no clean debt ceiling bill without spending cuts. I mean, where do you stand on that? Democrats have, the leadership has said they're not going to go for that. But, but what do you think about it? Oh, I mean, we, we, we can't. I mean, it's incredibly irresponsible. And we know that the folks who are going to be harmed by this, I mean, we're, think, we're, we're looking at a party that's now holding, you know, Medicare and Social Security hostage, right? We're looking at a party that's basically saying that we are not willing to pay off our debts. As, and, then I, and I think about, you know, that as I think about, you know, the conversation around student loan debt prices, mm-hmm. right? When I think about the conversations around people who are, who are, who are struggling through, you know, uh, uh, inflation and recessions, and we're always told fiscal responsibility, pay your debt, right? Uh, but that's not the conversation that we're having now. So I think about the implications of that. It, it, it is, it's, it's economic disaster. It's unprecedented. And it's a conversation as, it's, it's a conversation as dangerous, but that's what we meant by the confessions every day in those 15 votes. McCarthy sold a piece of his soul, sold a piece of the nation, sold a piece of our safety and our security. And that can't go, you know, that can't go un, um, unaddressed. It, it- I, I'm a little nervous even to, to find out down the road some of the other concessions that he made to get the job. Um, it, it, 15 rounds, there's a lot of opportunities to, to as you said, um, make those deals. When you think about the fact that you are, as I said, you made history with your race. And yesterday on the show, we had a really comprehensive conversation with the head of N Citizens United about um, the 13th mm-hmm. anniversary coming up. And and the impact of Citizens United and dark money in campaigns. I mean, you had tons of dark money spent against you. So, you know, we always have to think about why don't we have more representation? Well, this is one of the reasons why. Um, Talk a bit about the dark money that was spent against you and how you think, you know, Democrats should start talking more, perhaps, if you think that, about Citizens United and and ways to reform campaign finance. First of all, I think Democrats shouldn't talk more. We should act more about it. Mm. And I think that we need to really be honest about the fact that some folks, sometimes we're okay with this because it's against people who we don't want to see ascend to power or influence. So, A, being honest about it. Yes, money was spent in my races and races against other progressive, particularly progressive people of color. Mm. And it was a trend that is gaining traction, right? They were able to spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. I believe one group spent almost $26 million between our primaries, and I was the only person they spent in the general. But that's a lot of money to come in to say that we don't want working-class black women in office, right? A lot of money to say that we don't want these communities to have any self-determination. And 
I think that as Democrats, when we talk about democracy reform, we talk about voting rights, we talk about the legacy of John Lewis, we have to also recognize that if we want a reflective democracy, then we need to make sure that we're enfranchising people, that we're creating access to, to the polls, but we also have to make sure that they get a vote that's fair for the person who they want, that they're sending their representative and not having a system send it to them, right? These are the biggest impediments for black and brown folks, marginalized folks, poor folks, to getting into office and for them having representation that reflects their values. It's, there are a lot of obstacles, and they're systemic, and, and the money is a huge piece of it. When you, when you talk, um, and you, you've spoken often about centering the needs and the lived experiences of the most marginalized, we often center um, the white experience, um, the white suburban experience, um, when we're talking about politics. Um, what does it look like to you? to reframe this and actually center the concerns in a democratic policy agenda? Like what, what, what does that list policy list look like for you? Oh my goodness. I mean, first, I mean, it's going to be a policy list and it's a politics list. How we do our politics is going to have to shift if we're going to center, right. Marginalized people, I think around policy, I think there are so many opportunities, right? I think that when we think about marginalized people, these are interconnected issues, right? So it looks like education equity. It looks like, you know, infrastructure in, in, in communities that are not connected to job centers. It looks like housing justice. It looks like economic justice, labor movements, and working right, right? Making sure that we are expanding the labor movement and allowing it to expand so that it actually represents the fullness of our workforce. Uh, it looks like health care for all. It looks like free college so that students who are coming from marginalized backgrounds have opportunities for, uh, for economic advancement. But also it looks like our politics needing to be different. We can't do politics the same way with the same people. We can't support the same revolving doors of uh, consultants you know, who are coming in. We need to expand the idea of who is a stakeholder when we're talking and creating policy. If we're creating housing policy, we can't just go to developers. We need to go to tenants. Mm. You know, when we're creating policy around democracy reform and, and our civil and human rights, we need organizers and activists there. We need, lived, we need lived experience there. We need people who have gone through it and experienced it on the other end. That's how we need to start thinking about our politics. And we need money out of politics because we can't answer both to corporations and to the people. We can't serve two masters. I, I hope the people are listening. Um, one of the other things that's happening right now um, is I feel... Post-insurrection, I don't think anybody can say the sentence like, you know, the political rhetoric could turn violent. Like, we've already lived through it. So so now we are in a moment post-insurrection. Um, do you think that the normalization of political violence is, is still dangerous? I mean, we, we're just sort of allowing for hate speech. We're calling hate speech free speech. And I feel like there isn't even an effort anymore to marginalize voices that traffic in that type of hate speech. I mean... How do we how do we go about marginalizing people just so that we can actually have a serious conversation about policy as opposed to one that's just, you know, infused with all of this violent rhetoric? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to be clear, this violent rhetoric that we're hearing has always been there. It's always been an, an undercurrent and it's gaining traction because of the conditions like right that we are experiencing right now. And I think that the first thing that we have to do is we have to address the false economies that sometimes play out even in the media, right? You know, there is, not a, there is not an equivalency between the extreme right, you know, who are for insurrection, who are for corporations and, and fascism, and the left, who are for healthcare and racial justice. And the more that we allow that narrative to play out, 
the more we are putting at risk, you know, particularly black and brown women and men who are the ones who are at the vanguard of this progressive movement, who are at the vanguard of the, the systemic change that we're calling for. So we have to figure out, A, why, is, why are we allowing that to play out? This language is being allowed because the bigger thing that the left is trying to, to, to attack the system is worth protecting so much that we would actually risk, you know, political speech and political safety. The other thing um, that's happening in this particular moment I want to ask in the last few minutes is that we're also in a post-Dobbs reality where, um, you know, mostly black and brown women, but really all people who can get pregnant are going to be impacted by restrictions on abortion access. Um, When you think about your, your role as a member of Congress, I mean, obviously the House is led by Republicans at the moment, and they're going to try to do what they're going to do, restricting access. Um, but but how do you work over the next two years to spread the message to push for expanded access that could perhaps be passed in 2024? Yeah, I think that in particular moments when we are in a minority, right, we have to use all the other tools that we have that come with our platform, right? We have to leverage our platform. That means that we have to present, you know, an agenda. We have to present policy that... We'll, that we can win on, right, that is, you know, safe and sound, but we also have to organize. We need to make sure that we're organizing the Senate, our colleagues in the Senate, so that they're understanding the urgency around the filibuster, so that when we are there and when we are we gain that majority, we're ready to advance the legislation to protect uh, birthing people in this country. We need to organize folks on the outside and empower them. We need to craft the, mer- the message and the narrative, and we need to combat the negative narrative that we're getting from the right about abortion care and reproductive justice. We need to expand that conversation so that we're including black and brown birthing people, uh, where the, the black maternity mortality rate is rivaling uh, nations that are, are, are far less uh, wealthy as ours. Those are all parts and ways that we have to attack this if we're going to be serious about restoring those rights. Representative Summer Lee of Pennsylvania's 12th District, it has been a privilege to have you on the show. I'm pretty fired up now. I don't know if you guys at home felt the energy in this conversation, but I am like fired up. I'm like ready to go. I'm like, let's go organize. Let's go knock on some doors. Like I am ready. So um, I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much uh, for being here. Congratulations on your win and being sworn in as the first black congressperson to represent Pennsylvania. It's it's incredible um, when you can say a sentence like that. And so I said it again (laughs) to end the interview. Thank Thank you you so much. Thanks so much for having me. Please stay safe. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Zerlina. Check in for new episodes every weekday.